Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. I'm here with Yusuf Oine. What's up, my friend? Hey, Toby. All good here. Summer is finally in Finland, and I'm staying indoors for some reason. <laughs> uh, there's, there's one thing. I'm immensely proud of this. I need to blog about this at some point. So what I did last night, I didn't go to bed, as I normally go quite early. I built a custom Philips Hue smart lighting thing. And let me quickly explain what I did. Uh, I've seen a lot of people, especially with builds now, on a lot of those sessions they would have, like when you are busy on teams, then your lights go red or something like this. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of solutions for that already. But I figured it's not viable for me because I use Zoom, I might have this or that. So I built a custom .NET solution that pings my microphones, all the different ones that I have. And in, if any of those is active, meaning not muted, it doesn't really matter if it's muted or not, but if it's active, meaning an application is requesting resources from that microphone, then I'm pinging one Philips Hue light next to my home office door and it turns red so that the family knows, okay, he's probably recording or he's in a meeting, uh, he has video on, for example. All right, yeah, that sounds interesting. Because uh, all the examples I see, and I actually did this back in, I believe it was 2014 or something like that. Um, I built with the Skype SDK a long time ago. Uh, oh, similar yeah. things. Good times. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. And the, my entire desk, it was a glass board, and the edge of the desk turned red or green depending on my availability. Uh, but again, same problem there. I didn't use Skype for everything. I yeah. used a variety of different things. So. Uh, the microphone thing, microphone thing, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I'll I'll be sure uh, to to blog it up and share the source code. It's relatively easy, but it took me like two hours to figure the the APIs and and what to call and what to do. All right, cool. I'll try it out later. Yeah, and what's up with you? So for me, an interesting thing that I did is I'm using Power Toys now. They talked uh, a bit about this on on Microsoft Build as well. There's something called Fancy Zones on Windows now. And in the past, I used a tool called Divi. And on Windows, it's called WinDivi. And it's a tool where you can kind of place a virtual desktop or virtual windows on your desktop so you can easily position windows on the screen. And because I have a huge screen, and I don't want multiple monitors, but I want the uh, multiple monitor effect in terms of on the left side, I want my email. On the right side, I want Microsoft Teams. In the middle, I want my focus area or whatever kind of setup that, that you're rocking. So I used this tool WinDivi in the past, but now with the fancy zones, I actually dropped Divi entirely and started using fancy zones because this comes now natively built in into to Windows if you use the uh, the power toys that you can install. So yeah, that's actually pretty slick. I like this workflow and it works with the shortcuts that you have as well in Windows. So a quick question on this. I have power toys installed. I, I haven't used fancy zones because I couldn't really figure how to use those. Uh, so do you use the ready-made templates they have for the layout or did you create your own? So I, that's actually a good question. And, and just like with the other tool I used, I create my own templates and I have more, more than one. 
because not every day I do the same thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. I change my focus. And if I do a recording or a screencast or something like that, I have a different setup where I need less windows placed in a certain way. But if I do my daily work, I use another template, which is my Toby Focus template. Then I have a small bar on the left, a small bar on the right, and then in the middle I have my, my kind of main focus area. So I'm not using the built-in ones at all. I'm customizing it to, to fit my, my needs and my workflow as per my daily tasks. All right. You, you need to do a blog article on that because I, I need to start using the fancy zones, but I'm not entirely sure it's something I need, but perhaps I do. Yeah, I can write something up because I, I see a lot of people talking about this is how you install it and then you click here and you get the zone and that's it. But nobody's talking about the use case or how you can increase the productivity of your daily life by using it like this or that. So maybe this is something we can talk about. Sure. Alrighty. So today's episode, Azure Governance with the Azure Resource Graph. Uh, I know a little bit about this, but I've actively forgotten most of the things I used to know about this. So, <laughs> so what's Azure Resource Graph? So I can remind you on some of those topics then. I have worked a lot with Azure Resource Graph lately. And uh, to quote what they say on the Microsoft website, it's, you can gain insights to effectively govern your cloud resources. And I think this says it very well. I also wrote a, a blog post on this topic a while back about staying on top of your Azure governance game. And I think this kind of puts it in a, in a nice bucket that with Azure Resource Graph, you can increase governance, you can uh, explore all the resources you have, and you can do this interactively. So you can ask, ask Azure or put queries into a window, if you will, which is based on KQL, which is the Kustu query language. So if you use Azure Log Analytics and stuff like that, and you go to the logs and, and write a query, that's the same kind of query language you use for the Azure Resource Graph. So it's nothing new you have to learn. You just have to know the same type of filters and groupings and summarizations and visualizations and whatever you, that you already know. And if you don't know KQL, it might be a good idea to take a look at it because more and more resources in Azure are relying on you to be able to query them using KQL. All righty. So it, it being a graph, back in the day, we had Office Graph as part of Office 365. Nowadays, we have Microsoft Graph, the one API to rule them all. But this is a different thing. So the name to me says that this is for, for accessing your resources in Azure by using graph-like approaches, especially the query capabilities. So, so what sort of use cases do you have if, if somebody listening in on this is thinking, should I use this or not? Yeah, and, and that's a good question. It's just because it's there doesn't mean that you use it. Uh, but it's, it's great that you mentioned this, that the name kind of resembles some of the names we worked in the past or, or still do, like the Office 365 graphs and Microsoft 365 graphs and, and these different things. Um, with the Azure Resource Graph, um, you know, there's a, a bunch of different use cases for yourself, and I will talk about some of mine. But it also powers some of the things you already see in the portal. If you go to all resources and you get a list of resources, this is powered by the Azure Resource Graph, right? So, and if you go into a security center, it will tell you you have uh, three virtual machines without HTTPS or storage accounts with, with no SSL or whatever it is. You know, these things are also uh, possible to bubble up from the Azure Resource Graph. So 
use cases for me, except using whatever is already built into Azure, is uh, when I do extended audits and reviews of an Azure subscription. And that can be a security audit. It can be an infrastructure audit to, to see, are we following best practices? Are we doing what we're supposed to do with these resources? Do we have any gaps? Are we using network in the right way? Um, you know, things like that. Instead of going to the portal and clicking through everything or, you know, building a fancy application or PowerShell, you can just go to the Azure resource graph and you can do it from there. Uh, so what I do is I've crafted a bunch of scripts and they're PowerShell scripts, but in the PowerShell, instead of working natively with the commandlets for Azure, I work with the Azure resource graph API. So I ask a query using KQL, the cost to query language, and I say, hey, Azure, get me all the resources across all my subscriptions, right? Because now this is also cross-subscription. It's not limited to the one you're you know, targeting, but you can target one, multiple, or all of them. And you can say, get me all of them where storage account uh, does not have SSL or enforced HTTPS. Then you get them back and then you can put this into your audit report if that is what you're working on. So a, a bit simplified, of course, because I have a lot of these checks that I do. Um, most of them are checks that does not get checked by Azure Security Center or if you use ACSK, the DevOps Secure Kit, uh, to run assessments on your uh, Azure tenant. You know, the, the checks I build with the uh, Azure resource graph goes kind of outside of that, and that's where I see the most use. If there's already capabilities built into Azure, I don't want to build it again. But if I have a use case where someone says, you need to provide me a report that looks like this and that has this information, I am very certain that I can go to the Azure resource graph and get that data. Okay, makes makes perfect sense to me now. I nowadays I just did a did a tally. Uh, I frequently work between eight different Azure subscriptions. Don't ask me why. I know I have problems, <laughs> but I'm I'm fine with this. Uh, and this is probably something I could have used last week because I was expanding one of my IoT solutions, and and I kept hunting through those eight different subscriptions. Where's that one Azure function that I've implemented locally and deployed? to Azure, just the compiled version, so you cannot edit that in the, in the portal. And yep. it wasn't triggering, it, it didn't run. And I spent about 40 minutes trying to figure out why it's not running, what's, what's missing, what's the function authentication key, all that. And then it hit me when I got um, another, another glass of, of coffee. Oh yeah, I transformed this to, into a logic app, so the function is not doing anything anymore. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, you, you could have, use the, the Azure Research Graph for that and just say, get me all the functions. And then you can even do filters like where type equals whatever you're looking for. And then you can dwell into all the details of those resources and say all the functions that are stopped across all your subscriptions. That's yeah. it. You will get a list in, in an instant. So it's all right. So you mentioned you worked with, with PowerShell scripts, uh, but I'm sure if, if you don't want to script anything, uh, is it, Am I lacking something if I just open Azure Portal and go to Azure Resource Graph? Do, do I get to do fancy things through there as well? You get to do fancy things. Um, so since it's based on the KQL query language, uh, you get this editor in the Azure Portal. So you can actually directly from the Azure Portal, you can go to the, the Resource Graph and you can start asking questions or queries. But if you don't know how to write them, you can also open queries. So you can either 
copy-paste a query from online, if you found a query where someone says, I need to find all the resources, let's take the example we did, let's find all the storage accounts where SSL or HTTPS is not enforced, and you get a list. And then you can just copy that into the window and you can visualize it, you can see it right there. Uh, so from the Azure poll, you can do a lot, and you can also drill down, because it can be hard to understand that you're looking for resources or security resources or whatever it is, but how do you know what kind of fields and properties and data there is? In the Azure portal, you can actually see this. So you can just click it and then you can drill down and say, I want this data and this data. Um, and I, I find that pretty, uh, pretty useful. And speaking of that, going to the editor and, and working with the, the data and drilling down, there's a lot of people online who also share their, uh, their queries. So I'll see if I can find a, a couple of links and put that in the show notes then you can save those queries in your own subscriptions. So in your Azure portal, you can share or save a shared query and then you can reuse it. So next time you come there, you don't have to type everything in or copy paste it. You have it right there. You just click open a query and you will be able to select from all the queries that you have. Alrighty. And I trust that the Azure SDK for .NET, meaning C Sharp, I trust that's supported as well. Yeah, you can use uh, the Azure portal um, directly, or you can use the Azure CLI, uh, Azure PowerShell, Azure SDK for .NET, uh, or Python. And there's another way which I actually recently used myself, and I find this extremely useful, especially if you build blueprints or if you do a lot of things with ARM deployments and um, you kind of set things up using some kind of governance in your subscriptions. And personally, in, in my daily work, I manage a lot of Azure subscriptions, not one, not two, but you know, quite a handful. And what I want to do is I want to ensure that I have these queries available across the board, whatever account I sign in with, whatever, I want all my queries to be available. So what you can do is you can build an ARM template with shared queries. So if you have all your favorite queries that you use a lot and that you need yourself and your colleagues to be able to execute, you can put them into a, an ARM template or Azure Resource Manager template, which is a JSON format. You put it in there and these shared queries, you can then deploy them to a resource group in your subscription and voila, next time you go to this editor, you can then open a query and in the shared queries, um, there's a little section saying shared queries between you and the organization. You can select all these queries directly from there. So you craft them once, you test them, you put them into the template and then you can spread this out across all the different directories and, and subscriptions that you have, uh, which I find extremely beneficial in the way I work because I don't have one account with 10, 15 subscriptions. I have multiple accounts to completely isolate and separate different concerns. And then of course I want to replicate the capabilities and tools that I have across the board. So this is a great way for me to do that. So this is probably something I need to try out at some point is to create an ARM template with a bunch of shared queries, deploy that, but use Azure Lighthouse in there because that allows you, if you're a partner company, that allows you to, to manage your customer's Azure subscription. And that would be interesting in deploying those templates to then execute remotely those shared queries against your customer Azure subscriptions to understand what's happening with their governance. Yeah, could be a cool thing to try out. Yeah. Alrighty, so now once we are, are done with, with having whatever queries we want to execute, 
what sort of information do, do I get? What sort of resources do I discover now with, with, uh, through the graph? Uh, so, so when I started looking at this, um, one thing I learned was the ones, the resources that says yes on the field, complete mode deletion in the ARM template documentation, uh, and I will put a, put a link to this in the show notes, those are the ones uh, that you can query here because mm-hmm. you cannot get all types of resources, but most of the ones that I use on a daily basis or that I need are available. And like the main buckets that resource graph tables include are resources, and these are websites, function apps, storage account, you know, the resources you see in the Azure portal. Um, you have resource containers, you had uh, advisor resources specific to the Azure advisor, uh, alerts management resources, health resources, maintenance resources, and security resources. So there's different aspects. It's not just the actual service, like the app service, that's a resource, but it's also things around it, like the security resources and the different alerts you have. So you can actually query the Azure Resource Graph to see if you have any alerts on a specific area and see what kind of alerts you have set up. So it's not just the services and resources itself. It is the metadata around it that you can query as well. And I find that also... Uh, pretty helpful when I'm trying to explore what I have, how it's set up, how it's configured. And especially if you have multiple subscriptions and multiple directories and you run a query and you want to compare that report with something from a different subscription, you want to ensure that you're kind of on par with certain parts of the configuration and alerting and monitoring and advisories and everything. You can export the same kind of data from two places and then I just compare them in a diff tool. All righty. So... I think I'm, I'm ready to get started with this now. Uh, and, and for me, I'll probably start with the Azure portal and then move to Azure CLI or to use .NET and C Sharp. Is, is, is there something I, I should know or any sort of insights you found out that would be useful to know? Yeah, like with everything, it is one thing to, in theory, build it and then to do it in practice. And what I found out is after building quite extensive queries, because I, I need to get a lot of data about a lot of things. Um, I found that there's some recommendations for usage patterns, just like when you build anything in the cloud that will hammer some kind of endpoint or that will kind of put an excessive load on a, on a system. There's a couple of things you need to consider. One of those is throttling. Just like, you know, I come from, from a long background of working with Office 365 and SharePoint and if I used the APIs too much, I was throttled. You know, the server said, okay, I understand you want to grab this data, but you already sent so many requests, you have to back off. The same thing can happen here. If you send too many excessive queries, um, you, you kind of get a quota. And if you supersede that quota, you're going to get throttled and your query is not going to succeed. So that is something to think about. And whenever you request, if you, for example, use the, like we mentioned before, the Ashra SDK uh, for .NET, to run this query, you will get some response headers back. And these are the XMS user quota remaining and XMS user quota resets after. So the quota remaining will tell you how many queries you can run, right? How much can you still query this API before you run out of quota? The next question is, of course, well, if I run out, what happens next? It's going to be reset. So that's where the, the, the other header comes in XMS user quota resets after. And that's going to indicate how many seconds or minutes or whatever time span uh, before your quota is reset so you get new uh, quota credits. 
So this is something to keep in mind when you design solutions uh, for this, because like you mentioned, you if you build a solution that now uses Lighthouse or, or whatever it is, so you're, you can grab a bunch of information from a bunch of customers and, and you know if they have thousands or hundreds of thousands of resources, you have to design that with throttling in mind, because if you don't and you get throttled, you will not get a complete data set back. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing that I figured out is in order to avoid that scenario, in order to kind of work around the, the quota, is you can group queries instead of looping and executing multiple queries. So uh, grouping queries and, and building bigger queries with built-in grouping so you can group the data inside the actual query is better than running multiple small queries. So it's more expensive to run 10 queries with you know, very limited data sets than it is to run one query that can group the data uh, straight off the bat. Um, so that's also good to think about. And I, I guess the final thing on my mind, which I also learned when I was building a lot of these things, is spread out your queries. If you don't need the data ASAP, which you very seldom do if you are requesting this type of data, uh, if you need to get, I don't know, you need to send 100 queries. Uh, you don't need to send 100 queries right this second. Instead, wait a few seconds between them. So you execute 20 queries now, you wait 5, 10 seconds, then you execute uh, the next batch, and then you kind of batch them up like that. And if you do that, you spread them out horizontally, you will have more quotas um, uh, on, the, on the table, so you will not run out of the quotas. Right? So otherwise, you might get throttled again. If you want to execute 100 queries right now, and then you continue to do this and just hammer on, you know, building up to thousands of queries, it's not going to be possible to do that, you know, on an instance. So spread it out horizontally over the timeline, a couple of seconds in between. And I, I will put a link to the, the official docs from Microsoft where they talk about those uh, kind of horizontal timelines as well. Uh, so the documentation there is updated now, and this is pretty cool. So when you build solutions around this, especially if you craft your own solutions and you don't use the portal, take this into consideration because you will sooner or later bump into that and it's better to design your code and applications upfront with this in mind than to have to go and fix it afterwards. I think anybody who's worked with Cosmos DB and, and optimized those queries uh, to, to not hit the ceilings you have with your request units is, is probably quite familiar with, with this sort of approach. But at yeah. the same time, when you work with the cloud, and you often have these sort of ad hoc needs. Oh, I need to run this query. You, you have this uh, perhaps internalized attitude that the cloud just scales so I can do whatever I like. And, mm -hmm. and when, when you hit these throttlings and quotas and whatnot, that, that often surprises, oh yeah, I'm, I'm using a shared platform. So I, I don't get everything right this second. Yeah, and that, that's a good point. Um, I hear a lot of discussions with people where um, you come into the cloud, you're working with serverless, for example, Azure Functions, and you expect that to scale endlessly, whatever you put on it, but that's, it still runs on a server. But for you, as a consumer of that service, it's serverless, but it still runs on a server. So if you want to scale out, you have to design for that scale. And the same is with whatever you do in the cloud. Design with scale and design with throttling and resilience and retry guidance and all of this from day one. It's going to help you in the end. Yeah, and especially now, for example, with web apps and the app plans, scaling in essence is a, is a slider. You just slide it all the way to the right and, and figure out how much you're willing to pay on top of that. 
And back in the day, it was building servers and clusters and, and, and SAN networks and all that. It took weeks or months and it cost a lot. And then yeah. you kind of trusted that everything went well. But if it didn't, you, you, you accepted the fact that you can fine tune or tweak it. Now with scaling, it just has to work. We were given great tools and now we start demanding greatly as well. Yeah, sounds good. Alrighty, I think that was all we had on Azure Governance with the Azure Resource Graph. And as is customary, word of the day, let's learn a bit of Swedish and Finnish. Shall we start with Swedish? Yeah, uh, so this is actually a, a funny word that I saw for the first time yesterday on Twitter. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, we're in a thread, and I, I don't know if this was about Lego, because you know I, I usually see this thing coming up with Lego. Uh, the word is kind of a made-up word, but I've seen it used uh, in the past. I just never reflected on it. So the, the, the word is Wilhöver, and that is two words combined. Will uh, means want, Behöver means need. So it's a want, need. So when you really want something and you're trying to find an angle for why you actually need it, you're trying to justify for yourself why you need to get it, but you really just want it. You know, this is a combination of those words, Wilhöver. Oh, this, this makes perfect sense. Uh, so let me try Wilhöver. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. The move, that's the <laughs> moment move, speaking again here. Uh, I, will, I will so adopt this word. Even if we don't have anything like this in Finnish, I'll just start using the Swedish version. You can, you can coin a new word right now. Yes, and especially when it comes to Lego, it's it's always a Wilhelm. It's, <laughs> it's 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 never either. It's both. So the Finnish but one, what is it? The Finnish one. This is something that I learned. Uh, so it's let me let me say this first, and then I'll explain because I'm kind of internalizing this at the same time. So the Finnish word is etä virvonta, and what it means it's remote trick or treating, and. Perhaps we have an audience in the U.S., so I would imagine this is probably something for Halloween. But in the Nordics, well, at least in Finland, uh, we do this sort of trick-or-treating uh, during Easter. So that would be in April. Uh, and now, because you really couldn't go out that much in April, uh, somebody came up with the idea that, well, you could actually use Teams or Zoom to do trick-or-treating remotely, just dial people you know or random people and do your trick-or-treating poem or something that you recite and then perhaps you, you you're getting something i'm not sure what you would get perhaps it's a it's a gift card or or a like or something else but i i thought this was inventive that somebody came up with this so so the word again was eta virvonta eta virvonta yes eta means remote and and virvonta it's sort of trick-or-treating but there's, there's this, this Nordic aspect to it. <laughs> As always. As always. <laughs> and, and I think that's all we have for this episode. Thank you for tuning in and hear you next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.